Mixtape with Scott. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. The Mixtape with Scott is a podcast focused on listening to the stories of economists, scientists, and authors. I go back together with the guest in time to their youth, and then together we walk forward to the present through many of the important periods of their life uh, as they became economists and did their scholarship. Because so many of the people I interview are PhD economists, the path that we walk inevitably involves school. School is very important to many people that have PhDs because we spent a huge chunk of our young life in school. Uh, But sometimes it covers more than just school. And this week's podcast is one of those. Before I introduce my guest this week, I'd like to read a few lines from Sue Johnson's book, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. We use stories to make sense of our lives. We use stories as models to guide us into the future. We shape stories, stories shape us. This is the story, this interview here is the story, or it's at least a a selected version of a man's story named Miles Kimball. Miles Kimball is a distinguished professor of economics at the University of Colorado at Boulder, PhD from Harvard, full professor at Michigan, um, before he came to UC Boulder. He's a true Renaissance man. Uh, I think that comes across in the interview um, his interests range from his interests and his scholarship range from topics like macroeconomics, survey response, beliefs and perceptions, and much, much more. But in this interview, we learn so much about Miles's life, even outside of those topics, particularly his life as uh, a Mormon, devout Mormon from a devout Mormon, a fairly famous Mormon uh, uh, family. His grandfather was the 12th president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, which is, I asked him, is that kind of like being the Pope uh, for the Mormon church? And, and I think he said it was kind of like that. Um, uh, then he turned atheist and uh, he made many other turns in his life into where he is now, which is someone with a deep abiding passion to help economists uh, in their own journeys of, uh, of personal growth. Harvard trained, like I said, uh, it's a remarkable journey to listen to, and I just thoroughly enjoyed our time together. It's by far the longest interview I've done, though it's two and a half hours. For me, the interview flew by, as I find Miles to be a deeply intelligent, stimulating, thought-provoking, compassionate, and kind man. Uh, I hope you do too, Uh, but it is a long interview. Uh, I am your host again, Scott Cunningham. Thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe and tell other people uh, about the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So it's uh, it's my pleasure to have uh, on the podcast, uh, the first podcast of 2023 that I'm doing, uh, a person that I've gotten to be actual friends with over the last, I guess, year or maybe even the last two years, Miles Kimball. Miles, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. Can you, for the sake of the listener, tell us your your name and uh, uh, your title? Yeah, so and, and- I'm My- Miles, Miles Spencer Kimball. So I actually make a point often of saying my full name because it uh, says the connection to my grandfather, who was named Spencer. But uh, I also, I was 29 years at the University of Michigan, which was plenty of time for me to be emeritus professor of economics there. And uh, I'm also emeritus at the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan. 
And then here I am at the University of Colorado Boulder, and there I'm, I'm uh, Eugene B. Eaton, professor of economics. Anyway, there's there's a somebody died and made me made me <laughs> made me named chair <laughs> literally. Yeah. And and the family wasn't too happy about it. They wanted the money. They didn't want the money to go to somebody like me. But, right. Right. Somebody died and 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 made me uh, names chair here at the uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and uh, and I also am am uh, I can't even remember exactly the title, but I have an affiliation with the with the Institute for Behavioral Genetics. So I do do a little work on social science genetics uh, mm. that's uh, been about assorted mating. So, so I actually, oh, wow. I mean, one thing, one thing about me is I have very, very broad interests. So I, yeah. I, 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 I do research on a wide variety of different things. Uh, you know, on Repec, that's, that, that's where I rank the highest is breadth of citations across fields, which is kind of a, a reflection of having broad interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about that. You seem like a real Renaissance man. Um, uh, that that's actually so that so so. I what I was wanting to do is kind of go back in time a little bit and and learn a little bit about what your upbringing was like. What what, what was some? What did your mom and dad do for a living, and where did you grow up? So so I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So was there until about uh, age 13 and I was I was born as a baby in in Utah but uh, but that was only because you know my mom went to be with her her mom around the time of the birth uh, it's not like my family lived there at the time and so I grew up in Madison Wisconsin it's at, it's a college town it's a, it's also the capital of mm. Wisconsin, so it has some interesting things there. But I, but I lived in a wonderful area of the city called Nakoma that was near the near the arboretum. So mm. uh, a lot of a lot of interesting places, a lot of hills. Back then, we were free range children. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I would be on my bike roaming all over. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of this uh, free range children yeah. movement i think we we're overprotective of yeah kids now in the physical world and i mean i agree with jonathan Haidt. Uh, we're uh, we're we're overprotective of kids in the physical world and underprotective of them in the online world i mean yeah, you so should not be having 13 year olds on facebook it's mm -hmm. especially not 13 year old girls it's very bad for their psyches yeah and that yeah. And that's basically just Jonathan hates argument. I'm just agreeing with him, but he's right. the one who's made the case. Yeah, yeah. I was also free range and just rode my bike everywhere. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that you can do in these smaller towns. You know, uh, I grew up in Mississippi, and it just my my whole life was just riding my bike to the library or riding my bike just everywhere. It was wonderful. Um, I mean, the one of course the downside of Madison, Wisconsin, is it was bitter cold in the winter. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's right. Out of humidity too. So we're not just talking, we're not just talking about low temperature, but you've got yeah. you've got serious humidity. Right. 
What was your dad? Were your parents connected to the university? So my dad, my dad was a law professor. So I have oh. a lot of lawyers in my family. So, so um, I have, uh, I mean, I have, I have many interesting uncles and aunts, but what my, my dad's oldest brother was named Spencer LeVan Kimball. And he was the, at one point the head of the American Bar Foundation. Mm. He he was he did insurance law and and helped uh, craft insurance law for for I think it was for Wisconsin. But anyway, that had influence on insurance law in other states. So mm. so so my my uncle was a lawyer. My dad my uncle was a law professor. My dad was a law professor. My my brother. Is a is a tax lawyer. He was mm. a, a law professor at Boston University briefly, but uh, but you know, publisher Parrish was not very fun because he got he agonized over writing papers, and so having being in practice uh, suited him better. Suited but him he's, better. A, he's a relatively high flight tax lawyer. Mm. And, um, was that so, something that I, you thought you might do? Did you did you ever think that you might do law? Uh, not. No, I mean, I I have a long history of different things I I thought I'd be. Um, but, but before I go there, let me say I do have lawyer in me. I one of the the most fun one of the most fun projects I'm doing now is a paper on negative interest rate law, and mm. I think it's going to take time because. At this point, uh, the you know West Virginia versus EPA, where the where the the Supreme Court uh, is said the EPA was overstepping its bounds. Uh, you, you know, administrative law at the constitutional level is really in flux right now. So I think we'll we'll probably delay that uh, negative interest rate law piece until we know how administrative law. Has settled down a little bit more. The, the, the Supreme Court hasn't said what administrative agencies are allowed to do. Yeah. Yet, they they in other other than what they've been doing already. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in terms of if an administrative agency does anything new, when it, when are they allowed to do something new, and when are they not? Right. And uh, I think uh, so. Anyway, but but that's fun for me. Because yeah. I've got I've got I've got law by osmosis. But in terms of careers, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I've been all over the place. When I was a kid, I read a book on paleontology and went around saying I was wanted to be a paleontologist. And yeah. then a little bit later on, I was saying I wanted to be a physicist. And uh, and, I, and I was really good at math, so I was. I guess I'm still very proud of this, but I. I in my senior year of high school, I was ninth in the USA Math Olympiad. Wow! And that uh, so so I was good at math, and and it wasn't. I mean, this was without the kind of support you'd get if you. Well, there's a, Stuyvesant is an elite high school in in New York City, for example, that had a lot of support for people who mm. were for kids who were really good at math, but you know as far. I might being being in Provo, Utah, I might as well have been in the wilderness, although I had very supported, so very supportive teachers. 
they'd be mm. supportive in the sense of, okay, you can sit in the back of the class and study. Do, math you, yeah. Problem. Right. 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 Do your, do Anything. wait. So you leave, you leave um, Madison at 13 and go to Provo. Yeah. At 13. And then we went to Provo. So my dad was on the, uh, my dad was a law professor at the university of Wisconsin, but then he was in the founding faculty of Brigham Young university and oh. which, which immediately became quite a quite a good law school. The thing you've got to understand is um, there's there's a sense of in the Mormon Church, which I grew up in, and my dad was a believer till he died. Um, the there's there's this tradition that everybody everybody in the church does contributes in some position, you know, whether it's, it, you know, Sunday school teacher or, or uh, working, working the library that they have for, for materials for, or, or, uh, and you could go on and on, but there's this lay participation in right. Mormonism. So, so much so that, um, at the local level, there's, there's, there's not, not as big a distinction between, it's not this, it's like everybody, all the men are ordained as priests. Now, you know, Mormonism isn't is is a religion in which patriarchy is a good word. So, yeah. you know, you have people saying, Oh, the awful patriarchy. In Mormonism, it's like, ah, the patriarchy, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So so, right. so patriarch patriarch is a very positive word in Mormonism. So, you know, yeah. women, you know, women don't get the priesthood and and there's a there's a big story to be told about that, but the uh, have they never? Uh, is there no offshoots? Were any of the offshoots ever considered women getting the priesthood? Because I know there was like little branches off at different points, well, right? The, the offshoots tend to be many of the offshoots tend to be more conservative than than ah. the church. Got so it, I think I it. think it's it's. The schismatic tendency is much stronger for people who are more conservative. People who right. are more liberal, they just leave. They just leave. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, that's yeah. a good I point. I mean, when you know, when I when I left Mormonism, we had I'm 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 a Unitarian Universalist uh, officially. I never officially left Mormonism. I'm still on the books there, but I mm. I considered signing the book at the. Universe, Unitarian Universalist uh, congregation in Ann Arbor as as leaving Mormonism, even though I'm still on Mormonism's books, but it's mm. um it's uh you know Mormonism was a big part in my in my growing up. Um, I uh, I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but I my my grandfather was the head of the Mormon Church in in the whole world in um trying to think of the dates but you know when i was um when i was a teenager he was the head of the mormon church and he and uh he was important in the history of the mormon church because uh he as head of the mormon church he's the one who made it so that the mormon church uh, uh ordained blacks as priests as well as um, everyone else. And so there had been a bar on blacks 
getting the priesthood, with, with the exception of a few in the very early days of Mormonism. They're, they hadn't knowingly ordained blacks to the priesthood for, you know, a hundred years. Well, must be more than that, but like a hundred years and um, or more. And my grandfather changed that. And and he did that as a as a true believer. So he was, I mean, I knew my I knew my grandfather relatively well. I mean, he was a very busy man. So it's it's uh, but you know, I we moved to Provo, Utah when I was 13, and, and that's pretty close to where my grandfather worked in Salt Lake City. So, Wait, so, so I, how old were you when he became how old were you when he became president? I think I was, I think I was 13. I would think I was 13. Um, I mean, I mean that's so, for the people that are listening, uh, the, the, 14, you know, maybe. The, the, to be the president of, he was the 12th president of the Mormon church. It's, it's like your grandfather, you know, kind of conceptually might've been like the Pope or, or, or he had yeah. that, you that know, level. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like, on the one hand, it's a much smaller church than the Catholic church. So in that sense, in that sense, he, just because of the size of the church, he wasn't like the Pope, but in terms of theory, um, he was much more than the Pope mm. because um, the prophet of the Mormon church, the president of the Mormon church is the theology is that, that the president of the church can receive revelation from God that, says something totally new mm. and the pope is only supposed to interpret existing doctrine right. now the pope can make authoritative interpretations right and in practical sense some of them can be pretty new but but mm. if you think of an invocation of infallibility the biggest thing is is like saying that um mary was born without original sin i mean that's about right. the biggest thing that right. a pope has said validly say right. something about doctrine whereas the the head of the mormon church could introduce dramatically different doctrine now did your grandfather and, do that this was a big, what, what did, did your grandfather uh, do that this is the biggest thing giving giving blacks the priesthood now mm. uh, i think i think the um the other interesting part of that is my my dad was my grandfather's biographer so the first did mm. uh, two biographies. The first one with my cousin Andrew Kimball, but my dad's Edward Kimball, and and he's uh, my dad Edward L. Kimball is on Wikipedia too. So, mm. but but his he was uh, biograph wrote two biographies of my grandfather. My dad um, made an effort to to make it a warts and all biography in the sense oh. of not not a hagiography to say. Kind of things that might sound a little bad now i mean my grandfather was a very well-behaved guy so <laughs> there weren't there weren't really bad things except for political things i mean nowadays people look back and say oh he wasn't he wasn't good on gay rights which is true but you know he was president of the church in let's say 70 i don't know exactly but i'm guessing like 74 to 85 right so by by modern standards he wasn't good on gay rights at all yeah um, uh but at that time the big you know but he's but he did bring blacks into in some sense full statutory equality in the mormon church i mean you know right. there's kind of 
de facto equality which of blacks, which is a struggle everywhere in society, but in terms of statutory equality within the Mormon church, uh, he, he accomplished that. And, you know, that's pretty good for the, well, you know, 70. Did, did, did it feel differently when he became president? Like, did you feel like your social network treated you differently or, uh, you know, like, yes. So, so I got constant, I, I don't, don't want to exaggerate it, but I got constant extra warm fuzzies, shall we say, from people because my grandfather was the president of the church. I mean, it's like, I, I, I mean, it's so, it's so hard, but I mean, I would love to do something good enough in the world that people would have warm fuzzies for my grandchildren. <laughs> That's right. really pretty hard yeah, to do something sure. big enough <laughs> that that anybody would even even think of connecting your grandchildren to yeah, you and sure. treat your grandchildren a little bit that, better. That's, but he that's, was that big. My grandfather was that big that people treated me a little better because uh, maybe even a, mo a medium amount better because uh, of the good that he'd done in their view. Well, so you, when did this, you ultimately kind of for the listener, you ultimately end up leaving. You mentioned it. You're in the Unitarian Universalist Church now, but this process of leaving, I'm curious, when did it start? And, and, you know, well, I'll first just ask, when did it start and what, why did it happen? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. So let me, let me tell, but first let me tell you about my current status. So I'm one thing about the Unitarian Universalist Church is they didn't ever tell me I had to show up every Sunday. And so my attendance <laughs> record is pretty, pretty low. Visible. However, I, I am part of a I am part of a men's group uh, that um, at the at you know at the Uni Unitarian Universalist the Ann Arbor group. And, and it, you know, they, they started a bunch of men's group every year. They'd start a men's group, which is, I think, a wonderful thing. And uh, and when I moved to Colorado, I wasn't able to do it for a while. But then the, the pandemic made everybody do things on Zoom. So I'm, I'm back regularly, but, you know, getting together with uh, with those folks, which which reminds me, I got to lead the discussion this month. I got to. <laughs> Yeah, soon. Oh, no. but anyway i'll um good thing good thing to be reminded of that but but i'm in terms of beliefs what i say i say this clearly on my blog i'm a non-supernaturalist and right. if somebody asks me if i believe in god i say i believe in god as much as a non-supernaturalist can so right. i don't believe in any supernatural and i even have a blog post about what is supernatural and i that my answer there was i'm basically making the physicists the arbiter of what's supernatural mm. or not um, mm. oh interesting so, but 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 if you think about how do you define supernatural it's actually not a super easy question but i don't believe in the supernatural but i have a very positive attitude towards religion i think yeah. religion is very helpful and in particular well, I've written, I have, I have all my, when I was in um, Michigan every year, I get invited up to give a sermon at the, at the, um, 
community um, community Unitarian Universalists of Brighton, which is pretty close to Ann Arbor. Mm. And so those are all up online. I've got um, videos of many of them, but the texts are all there on my blog. And so you can see a lot of these things. But I, I, one of the simple views I have is religion kind of deals with the everything else category in our mm. our existence. So everything, it's, it's a little bit like natural philosophy. You know, natural philosophy was what they called everything they hadn't figured out yet. When they, yeah. you know, when they figured out physics, they called it physics. When they figured out chemistry, they called it chemistry. Uh, you know, when they figured out psychology, they called it psychology and everything they hadn't figured out yet, they called natural, natural philosophy. Well, religion is like that on... In a, on a bit more practical side, well, not entirely practical, but on not 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 exactly the scientific side, but um, in terms of our existence as human beings, the um, it's like all the stuff when we figure something out, it's like okay, we've got psychotherapy here, you know. Right. But all the stuff we haven't figured out yet, we mm. throw into this category of religion, and I think it's that's mm. a lot of important stuff. Yeah. The stuff yeah, that yeah, we yeah. haven't figured out. And that doesn't mean there's a supernatural. Right. But, but without believing in a supernatural, the category of things we haven't figured out very well yet is a super important mono right. category. Right, right. And that's that's what religion tries to deal with, sometimes better, sometimes worse. Yeah, that's, a, that's really nuanced. I mean, uh, when, you know, because it's not, I actually haven't, it's almost like you're kind of make this you saying it as someone who doesn't believe in the supernaturalist, but gives, you know, like uses the physicist to arbitrate what it what it would be to not be supernaturalist. It's almost like you're sort of saying, well, it's possible something in religion could kind of get sorted into this real category. I would imagine then the break from the LDS church is like not as it could at least have been not as antagonistic as it might have been but it, but is that oh no yeah, no i i was not i don't think it was particularly antagonistic for me at all so you do have a lot of people who leave mormonism who who leave with a lot of rancor yeah and and uh, i mean so so there's a lot to say about that first of all the bit of advice is simple. So for people who really believe in Mormonism, leaving Mormonism or coming to not believe it or otherwise leaving it, um, you got to remember for people who believe Mormonism is like a third parent. And so uh -huh. leaving Mormonism is like becoming estranged from your third parent. Mm. And you should be under the care of a psychotherapist when you leave Mormonism. Mm. For the same reason that if 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 you if your parent betrayed you, you ought to be under psychological care. Yeah, right, right. Mm. No, and, and so let me let me let me say more about Mormonism. So so I I mean look, my dad was a was a remarkable remarkable guy. He wasn't he wasn't uh perfect by any means and and uh, but I won't go into that, but he was, um, I mean, he was pretty good. And 
uh, the remarkable thing about him is he had a very positive view of the universe, like the universe was a very friendly place. And he had a very positive view of other people. I mean, so he was a Mormon liberal and he, he, he was not a conservative Mormon. I mean, he was a Mormon liberal, but on the other hand, he would always give, interpret people as favorably as possible, including church leaders. Mm. Um, and so, so I grew up with that. So my dad had this very positive view of things and I grew up with um, Mormon liberal publications uh, uh, like, like Sunstone and Dialogue there there on the shelf in uh you know in the dining room and it was um and so i got the idea oh yeah there are these questions about mormonism but they have answers because i mean in fact whatever the mormon church leaders thought those um certainly in that period of time that the, the mormon liberal publications were actually very supportive of the church and they yeah. were kind of solve solved some of the questions and problems that that uh, were there but i got a lot of good things from mormonism i mean i could i could uh i could say many things let me try to think of some most important but one of the main things was the emphasis on truth and that's mm. that's eventually where i why i left mormonism but I left Mormonism because of a value that Mormonism instilled in me and the value of truth. Yeah. I mean, that still, I feel that viscerally and in, in, uh, in, you know, one area and one, one you're, uh, you're a big proponent of is, is a statistical rectitude too. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, but, um, but you know, uh, Mormon church leaders lie uh, yeah. in their view to protect the institution in their view. But the way we were taught in Mormon Sunday school and so on, it there wasn't leeway to lie. There was right. not leeway to lie. This idea that you could lie to protect the church. No, no, no. You tell the truth. That's what I was taught in yeah. Mormonism. And that part, and so it's like uh, two conflicting parts of Mormonism. The part that says... Truth is one of the highest values. And I and I even, I don't know if everybody would buy this, but in my mind, the, the growing up, they would say, you know, people would say the church is true, meaning the Mormon church is true. Ah, and right, right. When, right. I, when I left Mormonism, I thought of that in terms of, that's a great statement because it says that truth judges Mormonism. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that actually goes back to um, Plato had that dialogue of Euthyphro, where there's the question of, is, is something just because the gods say so, or can the gods be judged by justice too? Right, and right, right, right. So, you know, the Mormon church is, is judged by, can be judged by truth. Mm -hmm. You know. And so so anyway, I mean, I got that value of truth from from Mormonism. Um, yeah, I got. Uh, I mean, one basic thing is Mormonism talks about the importance of family, which which um, and and in a very particular sense. I mean, the 
he was more specific than that. The, the, the Mormon church would talk a lot about the danger of men getting so involved with their careers that they neglected family. Yeah. And, and criticizing that. And I, I mean, I could have been much worse than I was on that score. Let's put it that way without, mm. without having that clear marker. I mean, mm. I spent a lot of time on my career and, and uh, maybe gave at, at many points a short shrift to my family, but I think less so than if I hadn't had that, uh, that as a clear warning. Right. So that's right. another good thing I got. Uh, Right. I got from them. Um, well, and those are some of the big ones. Oh, and, and I, the last one I want to say is Mormonism, as I grew up in it, now I, I grew up in a very intellectual Mormon family, but, but I grew up with it like with a very pro-intellectual version of Mormonism. I'm not saying there isn't an anti-intellectual version of Mormonism too, but I grew up with a very pro-intellectual version of Mormonism. And there were just so many interesting ideas because Mormonism has not, because of this idea of continuing revelation of modern revelation, you have not just the Bible, but you've got the Book of Mormon, you've got the Doctrine and Covenants, you've got all, all the things that leaders of the church have said, you've got the idea that you can get you know, revelation from God yourself uh, individually. And and so there are all these things written and all these things to think about and to try to figure out. And um, it's just fascinating. I mean, including the uh, Mormonism has, Mormonism was founded in 1830. So this was after a significant chunk of the scientific revolution. Now, unfortunately it was before the Darwinian revolution. Mm. And so Mormonism, Mormonism is not as bad as many evangelical churches about Darwinism. Um, but overall, it's got a mildly negative attitude towards Mormonism, well, towards Darwinism, which is right. too bad because I think the founder of Mormonism, for all his faults, if if he had lived to see the Darwinian revolution, he would have wound it into Mormonism. I mean, maybe right. maybe we we'd be in trouble now because a specific view on Darwinism would have gotten put into Mormon doctrine, but Darwinism would have been included somehow or, right. you know, so, so all the science up till the first half of the 19th century, Mormonism is down with it, which is a mm. very good strength of Mormonism. That's interesting. And, and that's made Mormonism um, very, it, and it even has a, a somewhat science fiction theology that mm -hmm. God comes from another world, for example, is a is a part of Mormon doctrine, and um, the idea that we can each of eternal progression that we can become gods and and uh, create create worlds. So you can see the science fiction resonances, and those science fiction resonances actually matter mm -hmm. because. Uh, Mormons have done have written a lot of great science fiction. Right, right, yeah. It's What's fun. the Ender's Game? And, the, yeah, and yeah, Orson Scott Card uh, is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, he's a, he's a marvelous tip of the iceberg, but there are an mm -hmm. awful lot of Mormon 
Mormon science fiction authors. Mm. Brandon Sanderson is one of the other famous ones. Mm. But um, um, a let more obscure one is uh, David Wolverton, who's written some nice books. I mean, I, you could go on and on with uh, wow. Mormon science fiction authors. But Mormonism was... Uh, had this idea of the plurality of worlds. And, mm. and so just, just this idea of an expansive universe with all kinds of interesting things out there. And of course, at yeah. that time, I did believe in supernatural, which was another, I mean, I was a true believer in Mormonism. Yeah. I was a true believer in Mormonism in, uh, for up until my mid thirties, I think. Uh, oh, as a uh, professor? So, oh, absolutely. Oh, you leave oh, the Mormon church I mean, at, at Michigan. Oh, yeah. oh, no, I was a true believer till at least the age of 35. Mm. Um, I was starting, I left the church uh, uh, when I was 39 and things were getting to fray. Obviously, things were getting to fray somewhat before then. But no, I was a full scale believer. I mean, I... Um, uh, so I was arguing religion with my college classmates at Harvard. Uh, I, I went on a Mormon mission. I spent two years in Japan in, in uh, it was called the Tokyo North Mission. So I was in Tokyo some of that time and sometimes in the suburbs. Mm. And um, uh, so I, I, you know, I spoke Japan, Japanese passively at the time could still say a few a few sentences. Uh, the um, and and then I came back and I I you know I was an elders quorum president. Uh, you know that that won't mean anything to non Mormons, but you know I was um, no I was a believer. I taught Sunday school for for many many years and and taught priesthood meeting and in fact. It, the the moment I mean I was even this might be a little shocking but I was even teaching uh, I was even teaching lessons uh, after I was no longer a believer <laughs> and oh, I kind really? of got, at some point got, at some point at some point uh, that's what I actually uh, what what I what I fully quit going to church was when they said I couldn't teach lessons. And oh, oh, it is very interesting how I, how, how I did it. It was no problem. So they wanted us to take a, a uh, sermon of a Mormon church leader and talk on it. Yeah. And so all I do was I just cross out everything I disagreed with. And then, and then the, <laughs> there was about a third of it left. And I just talk about that third. And that worked perfectly well. Right and, right, and you might have thought, oh, those are just kind of truisms, but there's a lot of depth to truisms. Yeah, so that sounds like how your dad kind of was. I mean, that's kind of that optimist, you know, looking for, looking for the parts that you can endorse almost. That kind well, of that seems like a very positive a approach. I still miss a lot of Mormonism. I think, in particular, when you talk about social policy. And, and reforming our society, I think the Mormon Church has a lot of, a lot of wonderful uh, wisdom in mm. it. About, I mean, it has its own welfare program. I mean, when when people think of Mormons being conservative and being against welfare programs, they've got to realize the Mormon Church has its own welfare programs. Mm. And so the Mormon Church was saying we're not comfortable with the government doing it. We are comfortable 
with we are absolutely comfortable with taking care of the poor. We should right. be taking care of the poor, but we're worried that the government will mangle it. Right. Um, right. And so it's it's not it's not this oh um and 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 it's and in fact uh, I mean one of the basic things that Mormon I mean I've written about this on my blog you know uh, how 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 I have one on how Mormon America avoided many of the bad fate much of the bad fate of uh, white conservative America uh, and and there you take care of everybody right in the congregation well I mean, even I mean really I mean you you take you try to take care of everybody and and it, it, it's not just I mean and if and the philosophy is it's not about I mean you do hand people money when when that's necessary but it's not mainly not about handing people money it's about it's about help helping them it's about talking to them helping them figure things out right. and and you you hand them money when need be and 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 the church has its own had its own commodity distribution system so that they could hand people food when they needed food and take care of other things and um but but it's it's like nobody's ignored it's right. like you have people who are assigned to be responsible for the most down and out people in the congregation. And, and, and um, it's, I, I mean, there's a remarkable wisdom in Mormonism about yeah. alternative ways we could organize society. Right. 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 Well, so, you know, what I, one of the things I think is interesting about, there's two things I think are so fascinating about you. One is this, just this complete, like I said, you know, you're this Renaissance man. You have so many interests. I'm sure people have said that to you. You're, you have, it's not just like dabbling either. It's not, it, you go so deep on so many different topics. And, um, and we could talk for a long time about that, but I wanted to talk about one, uh, how, you know, we met because of this thing called a pod that you ran a couple of years ago. And before we get into that, I was just kind of curious, how long have you been interested in personal growth? You know, and, 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 and what do you, what exactly does that phrase personal growth even mean to you? We could even start there. Hey, hey can I take a little bio break? I hope you yeah. were able to edit the enough. Yeah. I can that. So yeah, I'll be right back. Yeah. So, so how long have you been, when did that start? Is that a Mormon? Does, would you say that, you know, Mormonism is, is the beginning of your interest in personal growth or, or and first of all, what does it mean to you? What does that well, phrase that's interesting. mean? I, I mean, I think, I think, um, I hadn't thought about it as it, it's fully coming from Mormonism. I, it, I think it's a family thing too, but mm. certainly it's, it's there. Um, in Mormonism, because you, you you go to church every Sunday and and you get people talking about trying you know trying to be better. One of one of the cool things about Mormonism, I said that it 
has a lot of lay participation. It depends on mm. how you want to characterize. You know, all the men, all all the men are ordained priests, so with with few exceptions. And then the the women are also taking on ta taking on roles in running the church. Um, and 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 you would have people rotate in the pulpit. So the bishop is ahead of a Mormon congregation, not, not like in the Catholic Church where they're in the head of many congregations. A bishop is ahead of just one congregation. But the bishop only occasionally, the bishop might talk like once a month or something, but every, every week you'd have three or four or five uh, members of the congregation uh, give a talk. And and so it's just the members of the congregation talking to one another about, well, trying to be good. I mean, there's some amount of, uh, you know, trying to keep the, you know, how do you do a good job as a member of the institution of the church? But I think, I think actually the majority of the talks would be about trying to be good. Right. And, and people would people would regularly draw on things that were seemed like wise advice that was outside the that was not directly from the scriptures from the Mormon scriptures or anything. I mean, the Bible is a Mormon scripture, and you'd have other things in addition. The uh, so so there certainly was a personal growth aspect to Mormonism and the idea of eternal progression was explicitly about that. I, I should say about eternal progression that the Mormon church has backed off from that a little bit. I'm not, I, I'm not sure the current status of that, but when I was growing up, it was very clear that, that uh, if, if you were very, very good, you could <laughs> become a God in the hereafter. Mm. And you know, oh, interesting. And, uh, so, so I I don't know. I mean, that's the sort of doctrine that I think has been so it has been backed away from to some degree. And I'm not not sure of the current state of play there. But mm. there's there was no question when I was growing up that was a clear doctrine. There was a mm. you know it was often said something like as as man is god once was as god is man may become right and i right. would i would argue i would argue you know with at, at at college to my fellow students i would uh i would argue with the with the atheists i would argue that there was such a thing as truth and it wasn't all just relative so lots of, didn't get very far with that but that was that was the <laughs> argument and then yeah. with it with the with the Christian, Christian, but non-Mormon uh, uh, fellow students, I'd be uh, I'd, uh, down that sort of thing. I'd argue, well, which is more powerful, a God who can make make us become gods, or a God who can't? You know, things like right. things right. like that. But yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Know, so eternal. But but my mother had self-help books lying around the house, and actually, when it came time. When it came time for, uh, my parents never gave me the birds and the bee talks. My 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 mother just left these books about sex lying around, <laughs> hoping you find them. Pointing us to them, they were just left lying around. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, like I think I think I I read the uh, oh, like the female eunuch was one of them, and, and there was uh, 
I can't remember. I can't remember. Anyway, but but uh, the uh, so 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 my 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 mother was a double major, I think, in sociology and psychology. She always had self help books. But the thing the thing that I regularly say so now uh, as 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 Scott alluded to. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do for economics as a discipline, and since I think economics and economists are, are important in the world as a body, you know, take all the economists in the world, um, that's a lever you can move the world with. Right. Uh, if, you, right. if you convince all the economists in the world of something, yeah. it'll, it'll have an effect for, for good or ill, you know, if you convince them right. of, the, of something that's false. That could have yeah. a bad effect. Uh, so, so what I'm, so I, I'm one of the few economists in the world who's who's a certified life coach, and mm. that came about because my 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 daughter became a life coach and got got my wife Gail and and me interested in it. So my daughter Diana became a life coach, and and it's very cool training. Um, now what's a life but, coach? For those that don't know, how is it different from a therapist? Yeah, so so uh, I was trained by the what's now called the Coactive Training Institute. So in this, if if you do this, it's a very client centered approach. So first of all, it's it's not, um, it's you, you. I mean, there's a lot of things you do, but but a lot of it is you're you're kind of asking people powerful questions that help them think about their life. And but and there's even a technical definition of a powerful question. A powerful question is one that has at least like 25 different possible answers. And not, it's not a yes, no question. It's right. like, so it's sort of opening, open th opening things up. And, and so there are, with, with the way I got trained as a, as a coactive, coach they're they're kind of three modes one is um they call it fulfillment coaching but it's it's basically identifying somebody's values the things their objective function identifying right. their objective function and then trying to um you know uh asking questions that help them think about how how they're you know how they can what they want to do in relation to their objective function. Yeah. And so, and, and so that's, that's good sound economics in, in my view. Then another, another mode of but coaching. Some people can't articulate. Is that, is that sort of saying that some people really, that what their objective function is, they either don't know what it is or they might even be wrong about it. Oh, I mean, I, I, the, the marginal product of, of guided introspection on understanding your own objective function is huge mm. and so economic models that 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 act like knowing your own deep objective function is 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 easy right are our base yeah okay yeah. so 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 there's and and it's um well i mean so in my in my academic work uh uh, Real quick, Miles. Let me ask Miles. Let me ask you a question. So, 
clearly people think they know their objective function and they must have some objective, but you're saying that's different using the jargon of economics. That's, that might be different from your true underlying values. And so what, what does it look like in your opinion? Well, when... I, think I, would, I, I don't think I'd quite, here's how I would describe it. So, so I wouldn't describe it quite the way where you were going. So you, you clearly know a lot of things that you want mm -hmm. and, and life will throw up plenty. It's life will throw up plenty of obstacles where you can't get what you want that provide an opportunity to kind of understand better what you want. And so, so in particular, what, when, when you can't get what you want in, in this most straightforward way, which happens to us all the time, when you can't get what you want by the strategy you were already pursuing, then the question arise. you know, you can try to strategize, how can I make that happen after all? Or maybe I just need to try harder or keep pushing in the same direction. But another question is, wait a minute, is, is there a broader class of things that answer to what I want that, you know, I've been going after A, but is it in some sense, um, I'd be happy with A, B, C, D, or E, and you can describe the category of A, B, C, D, or E as some deeper desire. But the, but the, the, you know, what else, what else would I like? The fact that I've been working for A, I got blocked in trying to get A, I've been working towards it, and I can't, I can't seem to get it. What does that say about some broader category of things? that I might mm. want. That's the kind of thing that I mean by, by what, are your, what are your values? Mm. That a very, that the deeper your understanding of your, of your objective function, the more alternative strategies you have in the, in the possibility set. Mm. So, mm. so, you know, if you think that only A can make you happy, okay, there are different strategies for trying to get A. You know, I, I mean, it's it's like... How do you see this playing out in the life of a typical professor of economics? I'm curious. Like, uh, where... Oh, oh, I think, I think professors of economics... I talk about this on my blog. It's... it's You're fighting not only your own... Uh, your, your own narrowness in your view of your own deeper objective function you're you're fighting the culture of the discipline too so so i i i my shorthand for this is you 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 probably went into economics because you wanted to deeply understand the world or you wanted to make the world a better place or or you wanted some kind of deep intellectual satisfaction right and and then by the time you get fully socialized and you're, let's say, 40 years old as an economist, it can happen earlier than that, uh, you, you think that you're, what you're supposed to do and your goal, 
becomes that you think about all the time as I need to publish papers in top journals. Right. And my claim is if you care about publishing papers in top journals at all, which you reasonably can, it should be as a means to an end. It should right. be as a means towards making the world a better place. It should be as a means towards you understanding the world better. It should be a means towards other people understanding the world better. There yeah. has to be some higher goal than publishing papers in top journals, or yeah. you will find things a little bit hollow. Right. And right. So, so I realize that's a different statement than just, I mean, I mean, what I, do you think? So, ago, so, talking so, about getting frustrated because you have trouble publishing papers in top what journals. What do you think but is the, well, let me ask you this. What, a little hollow. What's the, what is some other, uh, what, what is the, you said the culture of the profession. Um, wh what do you think are some other common uh, statements or, or worldviews that the profession puts on publishing in top journals that, that people maybe don't realize, you know, because nobody actually outrightly says anything, you know, you can just sort of, things can, culture just kind of naturally evolves as an equilibrium. So I was just curious, what's a, you said, if you want to publish in top journals, it should be a means to a larger end. What are some other ways that people, you know, that you might be battling against uh, in the profession by saying that? What's a different message? Oh, well, I mean, what's what's an alternative to that as the view of your be all and end all? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's it's kind of the usual things. I mean, how have some what do you what do you want to have happen for the world? What do you want to mm -hmm. have happen for yourself? Right. Um, what do you want to have happen for your for your students. I mean, mm -hmm. what what would what would a good world look like? And and mm. and it's no, there's no harm in so so uh, here's actually it's related to the way I think of introductions to economics papers. So you start you start with something really really grand and say okay here's some here's some really big thing we're after okay and in order to get that we need to figure out this and in order to figure out that we need to figure out this and in order to do this i've got this strategy of doing this bit of research and, and i'm going to do it on this data yeah. so so it's like you start from the really big stuff and those are your you know that's like your north star and your planets and moon and everything you know you're 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 guiding yourself by the stars, yeah. and but then you, you want to be humble enough to be able to do a little tiny piece in moving progress forward. I mean, right. it doesn't it doesn't help to be grandiose in to be so grandiose that you're unwilling to do something small. I mean, you say here's here's the big thing I want to contribute to, and then what's the biggest thing that I personally am capable of doing or that I'm capable of putting together a team to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, so you want to be humble enough to contribute at whatever level you're capable of contributing and don't, don't uh, despise things that are small contributions to a much, much bigger thing. 
but you want to guide yourself by the big things. Right. And, 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 you know, it's, it's one, I, I, one time I gave, uh, I, I gave a invite. I haven't given them any invited lectures in my life, but I gave, gave one at Colorado College, and so was was there talking to people. And I thought, wow, at a liberal arts college, which I've never spent a lot of time at, they get to they get to think big thoughts. They, you know, they're right. not, they don't seem quite as obsessed by just publishing papers. On on the other hand, I've got to say the um, I mean, there, you know, there are many, many economists who are way, way higher ranked than I am in the professor. You know, you know, hundreds by the, by the uh, Repec metric, and it's, um, and I know many of them, and I know many of them, and a lot of them are workaholics, right? The economists who are better known. And and that's not to say anything anything against their work, right. but in terms of the life experience of the top economists, a lot of them are running, running, running to to publish enough papers so that they don't feel bad about themselves. Mm. And I'm not saying that's true of all of them. I mean, there's certainly some who seem to truly. In, enjoy their lives. I, I mean, I think of, um, I, I mean, I, what do I know? I only kind of know uh, the outsides of things, but but I think of John Campbell as somebody who seems like quite a happy, well-balanced economist. Mm. And, and you know, I, I don't know him super well, but I know him as well as you'd know, um, most other econ, you know, yet as you know, most other economists who aren't your colleague, and he seems like a happy, well-balanced person, and right? So than many other economists seem to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So back to life coaching. So you you ended up. Uh, so so part of what life coaching is is was this trying to understand what your core values are, and and, and it's not necessarily about mental health then it's not like you come in yeah so, so it's not the thing about okay how does it compare to psychotherapy so so it's not first of all it's not it's not freudian at all mm-hmm. not even a little bit and so if you think of classic freudian therapy it's not at all like that um the thing about life coaching on the other hand the thing about life coaching is it's so powerful and it works so well that this, like, I mean, by whatever name, it's so powerful and it works so well that the psychologists have noticed and the, the types of psychology that are the best documented to work by randomized controlled trials, those, those have some affinity that those are somewhat similar to life coaching. But the thing about life coaching is it's, it doesn't, it's not at all for people who are who are messed up. In fact, I've got to say, I the kind of training I have, it's useless for helping people who are who have serious problems. I mean, I, I I've tried. I mean, maybe unwisely, I think I tried once 
with life coaching of somebody who was depressed. It didn't work very well. Yeah. I tried, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I, I've tried to work with some folks who had bipolar. And if they, if, you know, if it's, if it's well treated, somebody can be bipolar and all these things can work really well. But if somebody right. has bipolar that's not well treated, yeah, and and that's often the luck of the draw of whether the medications work well for them. So right, but if, if, if somehow the medications don't work for them, the life coaching is kind of worthless. So, so I'm, I'm not saying totally worthless, but but it's it's not designed for people who are in serious trouble. That takes mm -hmm. that takes another whole level of expertise, but but it's amazingly powerful for people who, here's the thing, I, well, actually, let me, well, here's the thing, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll say more about this, but I, I've talked to people, to many, many people, I've talked to hundreds of people in enough depth to know that essentially everyone is carrying some major burden in their life. Yeah. That, that's pretty much universal. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, if you if, if you can if you can identify one person who's about you know who's gotten to middle age, I mean, it's a little different if somebody's really young. Maybe they haven't hit anything really bad yet. But if you if you can identify anyone who's thirty five years or older who hasn't had some major really tough thing in their life yeah that's that's remarkable that you can even identify one person right in that category right. so yeah. so it's quite the lottery so you can i mean there are people who have psychological disorders that life coaching is not capable of dealing with but if you take people like most of us i mean who are functioning pretty well in society who are in many ways pretty well put together and you have to be reasonably well put together to say get a phd in economics um and and if you don't have some other fairly clear psychological disorder then um life coaching can be immensely helpful yeah. and it can be immensely helpful um even if you've, even if you're carrying, uh, and 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 it's as especially if you're like almost every other human being, and you do carry some significant burden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and so it's like the 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 normal run of the the typical run of humanity. It's like the life coaching is really helpful. Let let me tell you the other modes of life coaching. So there's this identification of your objective function. Uh, another mode is just um, what I call perspective work, but you, 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 you just, you can generate different perspectives. So the way I do it when I'm coaching is you start out with some logical perspectives just to get those out of the way. And that's even, you, <laughs> ends up, those aren't very helpful. It's like, <laughs> but then you just do random perspectives, like the perspective of a teapot or of a cloud or of the ocean or of a dog. And mm. you go through a bunch of random perspectives and, and you have people kind of say, well, you know, what's the feeling 
tone mm -hmm. that is associated with that perspective. And okay, very briefly, what's what's an insight you got into um, the problem? You know, you have them start out with some some issue that they're worried about. Try to have them state the issue in a neutral way. What perspective did you get on that issue from this? From what 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 idea did you get about that issue from this perspective? But then you quickly take them to another perspective, and then when you're done, let's say you generate ten perspectives, three kind of logical ones, which and seven random ones they they'll typically like one of the random ones best and you say which one do you want to come from in sort in strategizing about this issue that you have and this just frees people it's like amazingly powerful what mm -hmm. this perspective work can do and and it's easy to learn i mean you know compared to getting a phd it's nothing to get fully trained in coaching i mean this is super easy stuff now now look i'm i'm I'm, I'm talking about folks who are capable of being economists who are really remarkable people. So, mm -hmm. so I, I'm, I've no doubt that the coaching training would be difficult for some people, but it's, it's, you know, for people who can get a PhD in economics, you can do this. Now you might have to expand your mind and, you know, do something that's uh, that involves some muscles you haven't, haven't strengthened very much in your life, but, uh, right. but you can do well, with several, what are some of the results that you've observed with economists that you've worked with? Oh, well, well, let me, let me, uh, you, I mean, one thing is, I mean, as a, as a coach, you, you're, you have strict confidentiality rules. And so, yeah, I, you know, and so that, that hampers somewhat saying, but let, let me talk about it, this in the broader context. So, so I got trained in this, and then there's 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 one more mode of the coactive coaching, which is just helping people be in touch with the feelings they're feeling right at this moment. Mm. And and the key there is you you just focus on the physical sensations that go with the feeling, so you don't overthink them. Right. And but but then um, after after I'd got got after I'd gotten all the coactive coaching training, there's a um, there's a kind of enhancement of that that's a uh, positive intelligence uh, tricks and tri uh, approach, which, which is, I like because what they have, what I, what I do for economists is I offer free for economists uh, a six week po program of positive intelligence training, which is kind of, kind of great because in, in a six week time, you get all the kind of, you, you get a lot of the wisdom of current psychology. You know, including mm -hmm. including neuroscience and 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 you know, I one of the one of the things I say in 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 the first week of the, I mean, and I say six week program, but it's just one hour a week for for one hour seven meetings uh, for one hour a week where you get together with with um, so we do it for economists and families. So we'll have nine nine participants uh, that are economists and 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 often their spouses or significant others. And uh, so it's like typically more than half economists because you have some single people and then you have some couples which are an economist and their spouse or significant other. And then, um, and, and it's, um, it's wonderful. My, my wife, Gail and I uh, lead those, lead those get togethers. And there's also an app that goes along with it, but you just learn a lot about yeah. it and the speech I give on the first time is I say, look, 
you don't have to believe all of this stuff. If you could find 10% that's useful for you, this right. is going to be helpful. And, right. and, and, and I give a guarantee this will make you 1% more productive. And if you think about it, if you, if you have something that takes one hour a week for seven weeks, and then, and then you're doing maybe 15 years, 15, sorry, you're doing maybe 15 minutes a day on an app for, mm -hmm. for six weeks. It's not going to take very long to, to, to make back your time, even right. with the 1%. Right, right, right. Productivity. And, and so what's the experience there? I mean, this is good stuff. So what we do, what we do first is we talk about identifying identifying your saboteurs. So, so um, Shirzad Shamin is the, is, is the guy who invented positive intelligence, which is kind of this pedagogical package of the, of, of the current state of psychology and neuroscience. And it's, uh, so, you know, the saboteurs are, we, we all know them. So, so the most, uh, the, the the saboteur everybody everybody every adult pretty much is aware of is the inner critic so yeah. how many people you're a very rare person if you don't have that little voice that says oh you stupid fool how could you make that mistake how could you how could you do that and so m many people have this in the extreme well here's here's I mean calls that your your judge so you've got right. this inner critic. That's judge of self. Well, guess what? Your inner critic also criticizes other people, but it also says, oh no, I got all these unpleasant things on my schedule I've got to do today. Well, that's 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 also a critic of the uh of the things you have to do. So you start identifying your saboteurs and noticing that internal voice and and you distance yourself a little bit from it. So it's it's very it's su surprisingly freeing. To go from saying uh, you, I'm, I'm a stupid fool, to saying, "Oh, my my inner my inner critic says I'm a stupid fool," mm -hmm. right? You you've just taken away two thirds of the punch of that I'm a fool if you say my inner critic says I'm a fool. Just distancing yeah. yourself that much, hugely powerful, and 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 so I mean. And so you kind of identify your saboteurs, but then we, what we go on to do is is to, I mean, so the opposite of saboteur, Shirzad calls the sage. And so you identify different ways of coming at things helpfully. First of all, you've got to get your brain state in the right place. And it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of this is well known. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that's accumulated about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. the, thing, the thing that positive intelligence does is it is it says you you can you can get to mindfulness in two minutes or even in fifteen seconds, and it, it you don't have to meditate for an hour. I mean, you might want to meditate for an hour to get into a really good place, but what what we especially need is is we've got all kinds of things thrown at us in the middle of every day, and to get back to mindfulness by um you know within a couple minutes time that's really useful and a lot of it is just getting back out of your head into your body you know like paying attention to um you know you can touch two fingers against each other and, and feel them very closely so that you can even feel the finger ridges for example or you can listen to the sounds around you that 
you know, your, your nearest sound is the sound of your own breath. How, how many of us, how much, how long has it been since you noticed your own breath? But as soon as you pay attention, it's right there. You can hear it. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it, but we, to, we tune that out. But that can pull you away from a brain state that's pretty unhelpful. You know, if you're super angry or if you're super ashamed or, or super getting down on yourself, um, just, you know, concentrating on bodily sensations can get you to a better brain state. So that's, that's stuff, I mean, that's stuff that the, 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 the phone app teaches and that we, we talk about. And, and look, I'm, the thing that's kind of cool in doing this for economists is we're, we economists are a hard bitten bunch. So you've got people who are really, really skeptical <laughs> a lot yeah. of times and, and, they 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 come out thinking it's really really valuable yeah, you know, and, yeah. And, and and the reason i mean i feel like this is something i can do for the world i mean economists are the reason it's important to to have at least a few economist coaches in the world is because economists um arrogant creatures that we are often don't listen to anybody but other economists. Right, that's true, so, yeah. So it's like, okay, okay, I, I can do this, I can do this, I can take these things and, and describe them in a way that's intellectually respectable to uh, to us, us hard-bitten, hard-bitten folks. And listen, I, I can be, I can, I can be very, very intellectual and, 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 and do that. So, so it's it's very cool, and then so you you learn. So to, to just to, to to lay out some of the rest, um, there's something that's we talked about religion having good stuff in it, even though there's also bad stuff, right? There's also bad stuff in religion. And by the way, <laughs> one of one of the one of the little get-togethers that Shirzad had for us coaches who are doing this. He just, he, it was very simple. He, he, he just, it was on Zoom. He, he divided people in different religions into different break rooms and had them discuss and then come back and tell us all. And guess what? Every religion you can name, you know, and, and there, there were about 10 different break rooms. So he didn't have to aggregate some. Um, there's a sage version and there's a saboteur version of that yeah. religion. So mm -hmm. Guess what? Every religion has a dark side without exception. And mm -hmm. every religion has a light side without exception. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, my, my least favorite religion is not Mormonism, but, but even they, it's, it's really, I'm not going to name them, but um, even they do so, have some aspect that's really working for people, yeah. you know, and I wouldn't ever recommend somebody go uh, because there's too much bad stuff, but but they would only be able to draw people in if they had something, something good in there. So every religion has a has a sage part, a side and a saboteur side. But what what's in common with all the major religions is they it, it for a supernaturalist it's often said everything happens for a reason. Now. For a non-supernaturalist, the way to say that is, look, you've got something you don't like has happened to you. Okay. You can you can either, if it's a small thing, you can just accept it. If it's a big thing, 
you're better advised to try to make some meaning out of it. Right. You know, what's the, what's the best way, you know, what's, what's the cool thing I can do to make it, to, to, to mitigate the bad in, impact? What's something yeah. I can learn from this? What's, uh, what, what, in order to make, in order to sort of counterattack against this bad thing, what, what cool thing can I think up? Right. You know, and so, so it's, you don't have to believe in the supernatural to say that you're going to wind up in a better place if you, you, you take the bad stuff that life throws at you and try to make things as good as possible, given that that, given that that happened and, and, and to, and to feel good about the fact that you are inspired to do something uh, creative yeah. to deal with that bad thing that happened to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's always some creative approach to whatever bad thing happened to you. And it may not make, I mean, my, it doesn't mean that it still, it wasn't a bad thing. Right. But you, you can, you can make it less bad. And with, yeah. with smaller things, you can make it, I mean, you know, when I say, when I say that, I, I, one of the things that's propelled me to go deeper in terms of self, in terms of, personal growth is uh, my wife and I have lost three children. So we had mm. our, our, we had two babies who died in infancy. And then my son, Spencer, uh, our son, Spencer committed suicide when he was 20 years old. Mm. And so that was really, 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 really tough. Mm. Uh, and I, we wouldn't be the people we are today if that hadn't happened. And I don't want it at all go to saying, oh, that made it all worthwhile. It didn't. It right. didn't. I mean, we, you know, in a heartbeat, go back and, you know, change the past if we could. Maybe, maybe unwisely so. I mean, I think that the Star Trek temporal prime directive is probably pretty wise, but <laughs> nevertheless, we would foolhardily go back and yeah. try to try to try to change those things but um yeah it's uh it's um you know but what are we supposed to do i mean do we want to lay down and say oh the rest of our life should be miserable because of that or or do we want to find whatever their magnitude whatever good things it's possible to come out of the deeper deeper dive that right. we ended up having to do into our own souls because our, our son died and 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 you know the, the the baby's dying wasn't as big but it was pretty pretty big too yeah, uh, yeah. although I, i'd have to say um fourth after that after the three our three children dying uh leaving Mormonism was the hardest thing in my life mm. or, or the disillusionment with Mormonism 
mm. the hardest thing in my life, I should say. I mean, I guess by the time I was disillusioned, the actual leaving wasn't super hard. But, um, but you know, that's a real reorientation of things. I mean, you, you, uh, my, psychologically, my life story is not, oh, I'm, I'm this, the first part of my life story is not, I'm this economist. It's, it's, I, I'm a Mormon and then I lose my faith. That's the yeah. first part of my life story. And, in and I'm not saying the career part wasn't an important ancillary piece of that. I mean, but, but even that was in service to being a Mormon. I mean, one of the right. things about Mormonism is that there are polls that say it's, it's, it's a pretty despised religion, actually. I mean, mm. unfortunately, people think well of Mormons. And so it's a little bit, there's a little bit of a disjunction. People think well of Mormons, Mormons, but they think ill of Mormonism. Right. And, and so it's not, I don't want to exaggerate how bad it is, but the fact that the world thinks ill of Mormonism, and I think it's because it is so avowedly supernaturalist. Yeah. You know, basically people are okay with religions that are, that have only a token supernaturalism in them. And of right. course I'm a non-supernaturalist now. So it's like, okay, I, 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 I understand the supernaturalists, but I myself am a non-supernaturalist. So I understand where people are coming from there. But but Mormonism is a high-intensity religion and, and people are not okay with high-intensity religions. Mm. And, uh, and so, I mean, you know, the folks who aren't in one aren't okay. The folks who are in one are often pretty mean about the other varieties. <laughs> but, but, but uh um, you know, Christians will say Mormonism isn't Christian, and and I think that's unfair. You you have, I mean, Mormonism is a Christian heresy, but it's a Christian heresy. It's not some other kind of heresy. Mm. It's a Christian heresy, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, so if if you want to say, oh, you can't be a heresy and be Christian, that's what they're saying when they say Mormonism isn't Christian. But no, it is a Christian heresy. Right. And, uh, you know, one, I have a blog post on the Mormon view of Jesus, which actually has a decent number of page views still. But, uh, you know, it's not, I, you know, we're Bible believers. Here I'm saying we still after all these years, but Mormons <laughs> are Bible believers. You know, I still I still identify as a Mormon in many ways. And, and uh, but um, it's. It's, uh, but yeah, leaving Mormonism was, was tough. Mm. It's, um, I, I mean, church leaders were lying, but I, I've got to say in relation to. That was the trigger. That was the trigger that was uh, experience, yeah, experiencing some de yeah. deception. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, well, it, and it was a step worse than that because the way it's a step worse than that is because it was worse than their lying was that they would they would harshly punish people who were telling the truth. Mm. Okay. 
So, so it's like, okay, you know, the, the, the total number of direct lies could have been pretty manageable, but it's the, if you tell the truth, we're going to throw you out of the church. We're going to, you know, we're going to fire you from Brigham Young University. We're, we're going to, uh, uh, whatever, bring down the weight of church uh, punishment on you. And, and, you know, for somebody who's a believer, the yeah. weight of church punishment can seem pretty big. It's a pretty big deal. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think. Because it's um, real. It's a yeah, real punishment. So, so, so the person I'd recommend, if you're interested in this, the person I'd recommend on this is Levina Fielding Anderson, who's a very sweet woman. And, but she set out to document ecclesiastical abuses in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly don't think Mormonism is a particularly bad church by any means. I mean, it's it's like, I mean, it's a it's a big enough church. You can find all kinds of all kinds of bad behavior. Um, right. but, the, but the problem, I mean, the problem was not that there would be some bad behavior in a church of millions of people. It's that the church leaders wanted to hush up what bad behavior there was, for example, right. Think, things like that. You know, it's like forthrightly say, of course, yes, there's bad behavior. This is unacceptable. You know, that's the right approach. Now, mm. to admit, you know, when it, as a non-supernaturalist, if you don't really have the supernatural, then I, I don't know that there's any easy solution because if 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 you go to the truth of Mormon history, and if, as I believe, the truth of history has to show it's not supernatural, because that's the truth of the world, that things aren't supernatural, uh, how can you be totally open and honest about Mormon history? So, so I, I told you one of the great things about Mormonism is because it started in the first half of the 19th century, that it's 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 uh, it's good with science up to that up to like 1850 or so like the, the, like the, the like the sun heart. being right like like the sun being the oh, center not the heart around the sun and so right. on. yeah they, they're not they're not putting anybody to death over oh, stuff but, like but, that 1850 science had a lot of physics and everything in it yeah so right remember that that's pretty sophisticated science unfortunately right. not darwin but uh pretty sophisticated science and and, and and Mormonism has no problem with relativity or anything like that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like that that's not a big that's not a big religious issue. The um but uh the um uh, but but that's history that's there's there's a lot of documents. There's a lot of documents. I mean, there's still there's still stuff probably new information you can get about the origins of Mormonism if you if you work hard enough digging up local newspapers, for example. <laughs> you know, it's it's like this is it, this is his Mormonism is historical in a way that the beginnings of Christianity aren't. Mm. And so so I, I don't know. So so I'm not saying so what there's happened? any so you you were you're at Michigan you're an assistant professor yeah, or something like that. And so what what start what are these like revelations about deception 
specifically that really start? Well, so to... I, have, I have a set of friends. So, so one of the things was um, I, in, in, the, in the wake of our second child dying, I, uh, you know, I, I, I was going to a deeper psychological place. And so, you know, I, 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 I consciously was seeking out additional friends because I, I knew I needed that. And the, and, and, and many of them were doubters. Right. Many of those friends were doubters. Uh, not all of them, but, but many of them were, were doubters. And it's interesting. I so we would we would get together regularly, and and at first I went and said, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the I'll I'll, I'll be a, 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 a well I thought the words I'll be an apostle to the unbelievers. I'll 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 I'll, I'll convince them, you know. So it's like I mean literally, I went in there. Thinking, you know, I wanted these friends, but I thought, oh, I'll I'll. I'll uh, you know, use my apologetic, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be an apologist here. And, mm -hmm. and I was. this was like a bereavement. This was kind of like a bereavement community. This was, or a, men's group. This was, it was a, men's a men's group. group. Okay. So I, so I actually belong to two men's group, a, a sort of former Mormon men's group and a, and a um, Unitarian Universalist men's group. And I, and my best friend is in both. Mm. So, so, um, cause he's one of the people, you know, we actually had like four couples who went from the Mormon church to the Unitarian church at the same time, although we didn't all keep going, but for a year or so, we, we most, we went, most, that group of folks went and, um, we're, but, um, so I was being the apologist for Mormonism you, and I, I mean the technical meaning of apologist, defending, yeah. defending things rationally, and uh, and that went on for two, three years. Uh, but it was it was an environment where it was easy to think very deeply because my friends knew so much about right. Mormon history and what the Mormon Church was doing and everything like that, and you know. I, I, um, and so, so we could have very well-informed debates, right? You know, and 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 I, you know, I I, I knew that, uh, I knew that what they were saying was factually correct, and then it's like, okay, how can you defend the church given the factual correctness of the things my friends were were telling me? Right. And which you couldn't deny. You sort of accepted that those oh, things I mean, were I, I never thought, I mean, the so-called anti-Mormons are not lying, basically. So so it's like like one of my friends said, you know, oh I can't remember can't remember the names, but there's this there was this group of folks called the Lighthouse ministry, lighthouse ministry, who are trying to get people out of Mormonism into Christianity. And my friend said, you know, they may not be very deep in what, uh, um, what they say, but they can photocopy, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, back then when we did photocopying rather than just send around electronic files, you know, it's, it's like, no, I mean, what, I mean, I'm, what are I'm they photocopying? A, what are they photocopying? Oh, old old Mormon, uh, old oh. 
Mormon documents and stuff. There, there's stuff that, you know, there's stuff that Brigham Young said in the 19th century that's kind of inconvenient for the Mormon <laughs> church leaders now. And, 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 and the internet made them have to admit this to some level, right? The internet made it just too easy to find this stuff. But back in the right. 90s, what I'm talking about, it was right. not so easy to find this stuff. And oh, so the yeah. church had a policy of, of trying to play it down and hide it to the extent it was possible to hide it. And that's yeah. what, and that kind of policy was, uh, was, was that like, uh, one of your first chinks in the armor a little oh, that bit? Didn't, again, that didn't bother me so much. It was the fact that when people tried to talk about this stuff and bring them to light, that the Mormon church would punish them. Right. 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 So right. in other words, if the Mormon church had just lied a little bit and had kept things from people in the sense of having the church curricula not tell people stuff, yeah. uh, uh, but they'd allowed folks independently to bring all this stuff to light, that wouldn't have bothered me so much. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that they, they immediately sprang to punish people who were trying to bring this stuff to light. That really mm -hmm. bothered me. Like well, what's the, what does it mean to punish? A, what does it mean to punish in a voluntary organization like that? Oh well, I, I mean, I, it's kind of what I said before. So first of all, uh, you've got BYU professors; they can fire. They get fired, right? Okay. So, so they can do some of that. So you, so you, so you have a, you have a few church universities. You have what's now, you know, BYU Provo, BYU Idaho, what's now called BYU Idaho and BYU Hawaii. They're they're folks who work directly for the church in other capacities yeah. um but uh, the the other thing that they can do is they the church the top the church folks in the church office building and sometimes higher than that but uh so sometimes it's the direct church leaders making this happen and, and occasionally it might be somebody a little lower down than that, but but let's say pretty high up, they'll basically send a note to your your bishop or, or so so your a bishop is over a congregation and a stake president is over about ten congregations mm -hmm. or something like that. So they'd send a note to your stake president or bishop saying you should call this person in and call them on the carpet. Mm. So so that was a. And and then I mean remember that you're you have in your local congregation you're in a thick thick relationship you have a you have a church job which you know let's say you're Sunday school teacher or something and maybe they fire you from being Sunday school teacher and it's not like you got paid for being Sunday school teacher so this isn't a you know if you didn't directly work for the church in a paying job which many people do. Uh, mm. It's not going to take away your livelihood, but it takes away a role you have in the community. They right. they, they could say, uh, we don't want you to pray anymore in church. Or mm. they, I mean, th th that's the moment I left the church was when they when 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 he said, okay, you can no longer teach any classes, and you can no longer, you know, do things like I I mean I wouldn't have made a big deal about praying in church, but not being able to teach classes it's like i mean i don't enjoy listening to what everybody else is saying anymore because i believe very differently and i thought 
and, and it was still fun for me to teach church classes. So it's like, okay, you're taking away the one one thing that I enjoy. Right, right, right. I confess, I was a little offended by that. So I, I but but I'd already been started attending the Unitarian Church. Uh, I'd go to the Unitarian Church and then I'd show up at the Mormon Church just to teach a, a Mormon church class mm -hmm. uh, when when I when I had one. But um, but yeah, you're taking away people's roles. You might officially throw someone out of the church. That's called excommunication. Uh, you you might. Um, uh, uh, the other thing the Mormon Church has this is probably more detail than people want, but there are um, even apart from hierarchical stuff, there are two levels of membership in the Mormon Church. There's the basic membership. This is not how they describe it, but there's the basic membership, and then there's having a temple recommend. Mm. And to be to be a um and, and, and so I'm I'm not using the words in the technical way, but if if I use them in a non-technical way, there's a there's an important sense in which you have to have a temple recommend to be in good standing, and so in the temple recommend, you you actually um, get asked lots of lots of very personal questions actually, and I, I have to I have to say one of my one of the things my 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 dad of course was the son of the president of the church and and he ended up having an effect on the temple recommend interviews where they started asking about belief more up up to that point they'd mostly asked about behavior you know mm. are you are you being good are you you know doing what church leaders tell you to some combination of being a good person and doing what church leaders tell you to but then partly because of some of my dad's questions they they added questions about well do you believe in God and in Jesus and implicitly at least do you believe in the supernatural and ah. so so you have to so I couldn't pass that test now but um the uh uh because of the non-belief in the supernatural but uh the uh so so you're kind of a second class citizen if you don't pass the temple recommend interview and when I when I said blacks couldn't get the priesthood they were also barred from the temple. Mm. So regardless the is, of is that a that that when was that policy created at the very beginning? Oh, it goes back to Brigham Young. Brigham it Young is the Young. Joseph Smith didn't so, have that policy. What Joseph Smith ordained at least one black man, mm. and um, I I. I, I think Brigham Young is the source. I mean, I'm not an expert on this part of Mormon history, but I think Joseph Smith um, simply assumed that you could ordain black men as well as others. And, and you know, he died before the Civil War. So mm. the, the fact that the fact that there weren't a lot of black men ordained in the time of Joseph Smith isn't terribly surprising. Right. these pre-Civil War days. Uh, but then Brigham Young instituted a ban on, on Blacks being ordained to the priesthood. But see, it's a bigger deal even in Mormonism than you might think, because first of all, all the other men were ordained priests. But second of all, um, 
as it is now, there are these two levels of membership in Mormonism with and without a temple recommend. And you are absolutely a second class citizen if you don't have a temple recommend. It's not just that you can't attend the temple, it's that you're, you're barred from the higher positions in the hierarchy, for example. You're, you're um, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's not surprising given that you put a lot of effort into evaluating people once a year with a temple recommend, and then you're gonna use that for lots of other purposes because you you put put a lot of effort into gathering some information, and so then it gets used for all kinds of all kinds of things. And and so one of the ways they can fire people from BYU is that they, I think they have a requirement that to be a professor at BYU you have to hold the temple recommend ah uh, and the only reason and, and that's endogenous because the only reason you wouldn't have the temple recommend would be some some revelation that came up in the meetings is that right or or if they if if you got a message down from the church hierarchy that this person's been writing stuff we don't like and ah. so you should pull. So either the bishop, yeah. either the bishop learned something, yeah. says, or somebody outside the bishop learned something. But it's yeah. like a, it's a pretty strong observable yeah. signal. And, 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 the, and, and the Mormon Church, not very successfully, tried to have a little deniability. Oh, it's your bishop who did that. It's your state president that did that. But, but that was not very successful because it was pretty obvious they were sending notes down at least strongly hinting to your stake president or bishop you should probably no no because they wanted deniability a stake president who is particularly liberal could protect you for a while mm. right so so it wasn't a, a total nothing that they that they wanted to say that this decision of pulling your temple recommend is due to the stake president or the bishop. It's stake president for men because they have the priesthood and the bishop for the women because they don't. But um, the uh, uh, so but but yeah, they sent a, they sent notes down strongly hinting you should maybe think about taking away this person's temple recommend and. Uh, and a state president could not do that if they wanted to. And, and particularly liberal ones would sometimes, you know, resist the hint. Right. But uh, most of them went along with the hint. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah so that mean, was like so. So real. So. So experiencing that in the context of that men's group, it was a slow process. It sounds like. But it was the feeling of disillusionment was really painful. I guess even especially after losing Spencer. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Spencer was much later. Spencer was. Oh, Spencer was later. I left Mormonism in the year two thousand. I'm, oh. I'm an old man. I'm now sixty-two. So I was in the Mormon Church from nineteen sixty to the beginning of when I was born, to to the beginning of two thousand. I see. Okay. And, um, and and uh, my son Spencer didn't die till two thousand nine. So I was saying after our second daughter died in infancy. Oh, I see. Okay, or, got it. Our second death. I mean, that was our 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 our, our uh, fourth fourth child, but second one to die. And um, no, so after so 
So Marianne died when I was in graduate school. Mm. And I, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation after the death of our first child. Mm. And uh, I, I um, you know, kept soldiering on. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't, I, wa I was not as psychologically deep in graduate school as I hope I am now. So it was not, I was not grieving as effectively as I could have. I wasn't as in touch with my emotions as, as I should. I should have been then, but, mm. but I, you know, I tried to grieve and everything, but, but mostly I just, okay, I'm going to move on. But then I, then I took grieving very seriously after, after Laura died in um, trying to remember which year, but it was in the early nineties. And, um, oh no, I know I remember because it's uh, two years before our youngest was born. So 1991, mm. so 1991, died and 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 then it was it was an interesting period of mormon mormon church history so one of the things one of the stories that i should tell in relation to mormonism was i um so it's so i this this is a story of outside offers i've had so when i when i had um two years when i when i got out of right when i was on the market right before I got my PhD, I, um, you know, I, I had interviews most places and I did a lot of flyouts and I, and I got a lot of offers, but, but I was hoping for offers at a higher rank than I got, you know, I think in Northwestern and Michigan were the highest ranked place, I guess Columbia too, though, I, 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 I leaned more towards smaller, smaller towns than New York at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, so those were kind of the highest ranked places that I got job offers. And I got a, I got a job offer at BYU at the time, too, but didn't take that terribly seriously. But but it's like if if at that point I had gotten an offer at Princeton, I would have gone there in a heartbeat. But two years later, when I did get an offer at Princeton, I decided against going there. Now, at the time, being a, a believing Mormon, it was, I prayed about it. I prayed yeah. about it. Now, as I look back at that, I, I do think for me, as, as for many people, I think prayer was a way of getting in touch with my, you know, with mm. my own objective function at a deep level. And so if I, as I interpret it now, that helped me, praying helped me get in touch with the wisdom I had somewhere in, in my brain that, um, I don't think I I don't think I do well under high pressure, and so I knew I I I knew I was I could fairly easily get tenure at Michigan. In fact, at my third year review, they were the, the issue was my teaching. They did they said, oh don't, don't worry about your <laughs> don't worry about your publications, just worry about your teaching. Um, but but I didn't go to Princeton then. I mean this was this was an untenured offer. And right. if it's a tenured offer, I would have obviously, well, obviously to me, even now I would have gone there. But then, then, you know, as, as is usual, when you're at a place for a long time, your salary falls behind with, you know, it's only, it's typically only outside offers that keep your salary up to, uh, Market, in line yeah. with your, in line with your, the better ones of your colleagues. And uh, 
the so so I got a little a little disgruntled about my salary having fallen behind in the late nineties and and so I got this bright idea oh why don't I go to BYU and so and they were very eager the economics department there was very eager to have me and there was an economist who is the dean of social sciences whom I negotiated with directly and 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 I got what I thought was a pretty good offer at the time, though salaries have kept going up in yeah. economics. I mean, at the end of the day, it was un, not so unusual, but it, it seemed like a rich offer to them. But I was trying to see if the game was worth the candle because I knew I'd have to subject myself to an orthodoxy test. Yeah. And my, I was a fully believing Mormon still at the time. This was in 1997. On the, on the other hand, I'd had all these liberal Mormon influences and so on. So I failed, I failed the orthodoxy test at the oh, hands you did. of my, uh, at, at actually at the hands of my dad's first cousin, who's a high Mormon official, you know, uh, Hal Eyring or Henry, Henry, I think Henry B. Eyring. Mm -hmm. And so, so I failed the orthodoxy test. You know, I had a, had an interview to test my orthodoxy with the president of Brigham Young University and with, uh, with, you know, with Hal Eyring, who's still a high Mormon church official. He's still alive. And um, this is probably the first time I've told this story publicly. I mean, at the time they, you know, I, I think it was the president where you kind of called me to say, Oh, you're not, you're not going to tell this story, are you? And, you know, but it's been enough years. So I said, Oh, yeah. no, I, I wouldn't do that, but it's been enough years. I'm not going to not, not, don't feel bound by that anymore. It's ancient history. I don't, I don't know how much they care about it anymore, but, uh, but anyway, I, when I was, a, when I was a tenured professor at Michigan, I was uh, uh, I was rejected for a job at BYU that the economics department dearly wanted to give me because I failed the orthodoxy test. What do you think was the what what, do you, what questions if you had to look back do you think you probably failed? Oh well, it, it was my support of uh, the Independent Morgan Magazine Sunstone. That's what they actually talked about. Um, now they they had a file on me with with some other. So with some other things in it, because I, you know, I, I'd, uh, but even that was things I'd said in relation to a Sunstone symposium. So I think. What's Sunstone? Think what is that? What's Sunstone? Well, Sunstone and Dialogue are the main liberal Mormon magazines. I mean, mm -hmm. Sunstone, I guess Dialogue called itself a journal uh, to be halfway to being an academic journal, but, um, the but they're 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 liberal Mormon magazine. Sunstone also organizes conferences for for intellect intellectual and liberal Mormons. I see. And that was a cause worth supporting. So so and and I've got a good name. You know, my my grandfather who was head of the Mormon Church was Spencer W. Kimball. So I've I've made a point of using my full name, Miles Spencer Kimball, sometimes at least on economics papers, so that 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 would automatically <laughs> reference my my grandfather if I just continue to use that in any religious context too. But uh but you know so there were, when it was a print version there'd be Sunstone magazines printed with Miles Spencer Kimball as one of the 
can't remember what I was, but it was like I was on the board. It, there was no work involved. So I lent my name to it because I thought it, it was a good thing. Uh, and 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 my some of my siblings still do to this day. And so um they in the in the in the orthodoxy test, they wanted me to speak ill of sunstone, basically. Mm. You, know? you wouldn't do it. No, and I would and, and I, you know, and I wouldn't do that. So I mean, I mean, I don't it, it might be that I would have failed the the orthodoxy test anyway, given the other things they had in um in my file, because the other thing that I'd done was um well, this is my my fr friends and I, we'd we'd organized uh, the, you know, the, the the church had gone through a period of 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 throwing, you know, throwing many people out of Mormonism. It's called the September 6 in Mormon history. Oh. And uh, and uh my I I my friends and I organized a letter that we had 43 signatures on from our us and fellow Mormons that expressed concern about this. And um and I was <laughs> I was volunteered to put my name first <laughs> because I was the close, you know, because I was uh the, the you know uh, had 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 the had the highest ranking relative, uh, although this was after my grandfather had died. And this was beyond this was beyond the time when I could have talked to my grandfather directly about it because he died. But um but anyway, my 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 name still meant something. So it, so I, you know, I was I was volunteered to put my name first, which I, I was totally willing to do. So that alone probably made me fail the orthodoxy test that I, I you know, because it's not just expressing concern. It's the fact that that my friends and I could organize 43 signatures for a letter like that, which is a little scary to the Mormon church. I mean, they worry about little tiny things. I mean, I mean, let, let me just say they're, they're so concerned about things fraying that mm. they would have thought that was a relatively big deal. Right. 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 I mean, I'm right. not saying that it was a big thing. I'm mm. saying they they worry about such small things that to them it was a big deal. Right, right. Well, so, you know, I guess like to kind of come to a, a bit of a conclusion, you know, it, it, is there something that you think, you know, to, to a listener regarding the, the, the work that you're doing with the life coaching, is, is there something that you would like to just kind of oh, end, end on come, with that? Come, come, come join us. I mean, so every every um seven weeks we start a new as is start a new pod uh just a new a new group of nine economists and their spouses or significant others and uh we you know you're gonna learn a lot in a short time but and and this is and you get to do it in the company with your fellow economists so right it's uh, it's it's cool stuff well well actually why don't you scott why don't you talk about your experience with this positive intelligence training? Well, um, I did your pod a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, the, the, the things that have, you know, I, so the things that I guess in my story, um, 
I have have not had the the positive experience of something sticking as long as this. That's for sure. I've tried lots of stuff and been bored by it. For some reason, this positive intelligence thing kind of uh, has been really useful. It's probably uh, because I I see a life coach that you introduced me to, Bex. Um, I still see her. Um, that's been a really rewarding relationship. I have not been, I have been really surprised that, um, that I have the rapport with her and that, um, the quality of our conversations each time is very structured. So, but yet real fluid. And she, I I think has really helped me, you know, just, just think more deeply about, um, these basic things like this sage saboteur idea has been really useful, but I do the, um, since then I, I have, I have found that these, um, mindfulness exercises that, that's, that he calls, uh, PQ reps, those of that, that mindfulness and that, that meditative work on a daily basis has just been, it's been pretty critical because I think, Sometimes I really struggle um, with a lot of things that have gone unchecked for a long, long time and uh, didn't quite know that they were problematic. Things like, um, you know, you know, things that are uh, I, I, I had some events. I had a suicide attempt in my family um, that that left me pretty, pretty, pretty upset. Um I had a lot of guilt I felt over it um, that I couldn't get rid of. And, um, but I did not know that some of that guilt uh, might have a name that wasn't really positive. Uh, That's sort of like um, this idea of being a victim. That that was not something that I thought of. I, I, I felt like if I moved on, from that suicide attempt that I would be betraying that person. I felt like it was really important. It was moral, uh, ethical. It was unethical for me to uh, move on that. And so I really uh, couldn't, couldn't do it. And even as a Christian uh, where you believe in things like God's uh, grace and his forgiveness, I, I just couldn't accept it. And, um, Something about the pod, something about the curriculum, something about probably a lot of it is working with Bex, something about just these basic concepts. There was this personality test that you take and learning that I scored basically a perfect score on victim uh, was pretty startling, seeing that victims... uh, I've got a strong victim saboteur too, by the way. Yeah, the, the the interaction between some of these traits are particularly toxic. So like the victim combined with this thing called a pleaser, which is basically pretty manipulative. The the ple- I'd never thought of a pleaser as being as manipulative as he is, but the pleaser sort of gives gifts in order to get his own needs met by other people rather than just asking for those needs to be met. And so uh, when you put that victim, that pleaser together, I think it's some of my 
it's been, you know, and then my, I think, I think it, 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 it got me through life and I don't want it. And so, um, and then I have other things. So I'm always learning more things about myself. So I recently retook the test and scored very high on restless saboteur. Hey, hey uh, can, I, can I say yeah. a little bit about what, what I learned from this? So, so yeah. one of the things people learn a lot, even just from doing the saboteur assessment and, and you can do that online. I, I hope we can put like three links in here. We can put a yeah. link to this saboteur test, which you could do without doing anything more in the program yeah. and you learn something from it. And then, and then two links to, I've got a blog post describing the program and which again, I do free for economists. This is like a, a market value of a thousand dollars that, but I'm trained. I can do it free for economists and, and their families. And then, and then there's testimonials uh, many economists have done this and have did it. It's been about 150 economists plus their, and family who've done it so far. So there are quite a few testimonials too. So we'll, we'll, I hope we put those links up. Yeah. What I learned from the saboteur assessment, so, so I've got that victim, which is kind of episodic for me. I've got this hyperachiever, which, yeah. which says, you know, the hyperachiever usually says, oh, you didn't get enough done today, or you could, uh, or you're wasting time. You know, that's my hyperachiever. And then there's a hyperrational, which, um, you know, for somebody like me who identifies in, as an intellectual, that was a little hard at first to identify. But in fact, it, it has been a blight on my life because I, 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 I grew up having the other, you know, other people thinking, oh, Miles isn't fully human, mm. you know, or talking like that. You know, it's like, like I once, I once had somebody said, Oh, I realized from that interaction I saw that you really do care about people. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so okay, that can compliment if there ever was one. But but uh, I thought I cared about people all along. But um, anyway, and then and then the one that was the biggest surprise was the controller saboteur. So it's like oh. probably obvious to everybody else, but. You know, especially on my research teams, but I got to say it's helped me enormously with my research teams just to recognize that I've got a problem with the controller saboteur and yeah. to try to not to, to, to try to not tightly run the show right. too much. Right. And and uh, so I've got to say it's just helped enormously with our with our research team. It's like mm. I'm, I'm giving space for for the other people to be creative rather than smart too is, I mean, it doesn't make me be any less creative and it gives space for them to be creative and we get to better ideas as a team. And that's that I really account for, you know, my dealing with my controller saboteur and Hey, everybody I work with that I can convince uh, to, I, I have do this positive intelligence program. And actually I've had a lot of people on research teams I'm, I'm in, I'm with, do the positive intelligence program and some of them get other coaching. So, so uh, Bex, who, who, uh, who is um, Scott's coach is somebody, we, we still have a group of coaches who still meet every week to, to talk about positive intelligence. So I see, I see Bex all the time, but uh, anyway, she's a great coach. Wife is a coach. And, and so, so this, this positive intelligence training, in addition to being, 
hugely valuable in its own right is um, we, you know, we, we offer along with it, uh, you know, a free coaching session so you can see what that's like. And mm. uh, so, uh, so some people decide to go further and do some of the one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I, but most people and do, do the six weeks program and they find it very valuable. In fact, a lot of people find it so valuable that the pod keeps meeting even you know, without Gail and me, even after we've gone on to do the next pod, uh, quite yeah. a few of the pods actually found it so valuable that they keep on meeting. But anyway, this is, we'll, I hope we'll put some good links on there, yeah. but do take a look. And, and uh, this is something, I mean, we'll, I mean, and, and I'll put you on the waiting list. I'm, I'm hoping along the way to convince, uh, folks like Scott to, to, to become full, fully trained economist coaches too, so we can ramp up the speed of doing this positive intelligence training. So Scott has alluded to this a little bit on, on Twitter, but that, I, that coaching training is really cool stuff. And like I said, for anyone who's gotten a PhD, it is a breeze compared to that. You know, you know it's like a tenth, a tenth the effort and, and right. you can have really fabulous skills that believe me, they're skills that come in handy and in, in advising students, for example, that yeah. in, in dealing gracefully with colleagues in not being miserable yourself. Right. I mean, and, and one of the things I, I, I coach a few people uh, directly. I don't have time to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I'm doing it. I'm you know, doing the positive intelligence circle. And then I have a very small set of people I coach, but it's a really cool thing. It's a real privilege to have a ringside seat at someone's life. And, and right. I got to say, coaching relationship makes everybody look good. It makes the coach look good. It makes the, it makes the, the per person being coached look good because you get to see people's highest aspirations and what they really, really care about. I, I think, I think human values, human desires at the deepest level are really beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. As economists, I mean, what's the job of economists? You know, being a coach is the same job as an economist because, okay, economists do have two jobs. One job is understanding how the world works. But the right. other job of economists, which is a little bit more policy related, is helping people get more of what we want. Well, yeah. Sorry, helping people get more of what they want. That. Right. It, it, I love the fact that economics is deferential or non-paternalistic to, to what people want. And coaching mm -hmm. is very much deferential and non-paternalistic in the same way. It's right. like you talk to people about their values, that's identifying what they want and try to help them get more of what they want in their life. Yeah. And same job as economists. So, right. so uh, yeah. it's fun. It's fun being a, a, it's fun being an economist coach. And I yeah. wish there were more economists coaches in the world and 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 scott you need you need to do it we, the world needs more economist coaches you could make a big percentage increase in the total number of economist coaches in the world if you make that leap. I, i'm i'm definitely interested i definitely am interested I definitely am well it's been so nice to 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 learn your story miles and uh and hear um just the the life journey that you've been on and, and the, the unique perspective that you have on, on life and career and the, 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 the gifts that you've learned from all this and what you're trying to do to, 
uh, do with that now through the positive intelligence stuff. I, I really, and I, I've really enjoyed our getting to become friends. So it's, it's also just nice to get yeah, to talk. It's been fun, Josh. Yeah. Gonna see us through. Yeah. Honey, you need me. Baby, I need